Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Phenomenal Podcast. You are here with me, Maria, and me, Shauna. And before we get into this week's episode, we just want to talk a little bit about the events that have been happening in the world over the past week and voice our support and our solidarity to everybody in America that's involved in the protests and the riots against police brutality and the systematic racism that people have unfortunately been forced to live with for so long there. And we in Ireland have shown great support for what's going on, but we're also not immune to it here with direct provision and people just have had to live with racism throughout their lives here. From my own point of view, I don't listen all that often because, as you may have gathered by the fact that I do a podcast, I really like the sound of my own voice. So I have been pretty quiet for the last few days because for once in my life, I am actually listening as a white middle class woman. I don't feel like it is my place to lend my thoughts and opinions to what is going on right now but I obviously completely support everything that is going on and if anybody has anything to share I am more than willing to listen and yeah I guess myself and Shauna were talking before we started recording and one of the ways that we really wanted to help lend our support was to see if there were any women whose stories we could share. Unfortunately, neither of us were able to locate anyone. That doesn't mean that those stories don't exist. It just means that they're buried even deeper than the histories of white Irish women, which in and of itself can be quite difficult to find. So if anybody who's listening has any stories that they're willing to point in our direction, we would be more than delighted to share those stories we just can't find them ourselves yeah and you know we want this podcast to be about inclusivity and diversity and sharing the stories of women so if anybody does have any stories of non-white women we'd love to hear them and share them great so that being said we're going to kick off this week's episode The usual limitations apply, as have applied since the beginning of the coronavirus. We are recording via laptop, so if there are any sound issue qualities, we apologise. So thanks for bearing with us. Let's get started. Shauna's turn is this week. And Shauna, you are going to talk to us about... I am going to talk to you about Mother Jones. And uh, I'm happy to do her this week, actually, because she herself was involved in many protests. She was a union organiser, an agitator is her given term a lot, and a labour activist. She was named in the Guardian as one of the top 10 revolutionaries in history. So she's pretty badass. But she wasn't always known as Mother Jones, because that would be weird to call her little child mother. She was born Mary Harris in Cork City. Her exact date of birth isn't definitely known, but it's believed it was... 1837 although in her autobiography much later she says it was in 1830 she aged herself to kind of build into this character of mother jones 
So she would have grown up in a time of great turmoil in Ireland and she would have saw the beginnings of the famine and lived through some of it. As per the usual, there's not much said about her early life, but it is thought that she was born either in Shandon Street or Blarney Street, which are a stone's throw away from one another, and which is also where I was born and lived as a baby. So, so a little personal factoid there for you. Her family moved to the city from the parish of Inchigila in search of work. She more than likely attended the North Pres School in Cork City, which is still a school today. And she does mention that as a child, she saw cartloads of emaciated skeletons being wheeled through the streets of Shandon for burial. She also would have seen food being brought down to the ports to be exported. So obviously seeing this conflict of realities for the poor and the rich as a child would have, you know, had a big effect on her psyche and this unjust allocation of wealth. She lived in fear of being sent to the workhouse, so I think she obviously had a bit of a traumatic childhood, as the majority of people in Ireland would have at the time. However, though, she has some escape, because in 1847, her father and brother got work in Toronto as railroad labourers, and four years later, the family joined him there. Her parents established a stable working class household for the family. Now, I couldn't find anywhere if she had more than one brother, so I don't know how big of a family she came from, but seeing as they were Catholic and Irish at the time, it was, you know, people would have had a lot of babies, but also because of the time, you know, people passed away young and what have you, so I don't know how big her family actually was. How did she manage to get educated in Famine Time Ireland as a Catholic, do you know? So it was illegal before the end of the 18th century to educate Catholic children. They would have had the hedge school and stuff. But then going into the 19th century, it was a lot more common for Catholic children to be educated. So they went to Toronto and they all integrated into the Irish community there. And Mary received an education at the Toronto National School. After finishing in the common school, she attended the normal school, which was a teacher's college, like specifically training teachers. And she also practiced dressmaking skills. In 1860, she left Toronto to move to Monroe in Michigan to teach at a convent, but she found that to be an awful depressing place. So she left there for Chicago, where she opened a dressmaking establishment. And she says in her autobiography, I preferred sewing to bossing little children, which is a fair point. However, she went back to teaching again soon after this time, but it, this time in Memphis, Tennessee. And here she married George Jones, who was an iron worker and strong union supporter. They had four children over the course of six years, but in 1867, tragedy struck as a yellow fever epidemic swept Memphis. In her biography, she says, The rich and well-to-do fled the city. Schools and churches were closed. People were not permitted to enter the house of a yellow fever victim without permits. The poor could not afford nurses. Across the street from me, ten persons lay dead from the plague. The dead surrounded us. They were buried at night quickly and without ceremony. All about my house I could hear weeping and cries of delirium. One by one, my four little children sickened and died. I washed their little bodies and got them ready for burial. 
My husband caught the fever and died. I sat alone through nights of grief. No one came to me. No one could. So she lost everyone. Everybody. In the space of, you know, one after another. Poor woman. I know. It's like insane to think about somebody going through that amount of grief, you know. And obviously going through something like that would would change your whole being. But after that, the union that her husband were was a part of really helped her just being very supportive and they helped her financially. And this was a kindness that she never forgot. So she moved back to Chicago and now she was a 30-year-old widow and she returned to dressmaking. So she set up a successful business sewing for wealthy people. And from the luxury of her employees' houses, she would often look out at the streets and see people starving, people living on the streets, just having nowhere to go. And it really affected her, the contrast, again, of the wealthy and the poor. And she was kind of shocked at this and disturbed by this, but it's also something that she would have experienced her whole life. And she noted how her employers didn't seem to care or notice. So this really ties into kind of her her beliefs this is the soundlings of them it's interesting as you're talking how many parallels i can see between now like the current climate that we're in and back then plus que ce change it is and it is kind of disturbing looking at history and being like jeez like you know you think we'd have figured stuff out by now but just still the same battles you know are ongoing Fair play to her, though, in fairness, for being able to pick herself back up again, because there's many people who would have just been completely obliterated by that level of tragedy. I, yeah, there's like, if you can't even imagine it, I don't know how she did that. And again, it's tragedy hit her again now after she set up this business. There was a great fire in Chicago known as the Great Chicago Fire in 1871 that burned like the majority of the city down and she lost everything once again, like everything, the clothes off her back, her house, everything, and she became homeless. But so did a lot of other people and uh, she didn't have anywhere to go, but there was a nearby church that was used to house refugees and she camped there until she found somewhere to go. Now, nearby in an old fire torch building, the Knights of Labour held meetings. And this was the labour organisation at the time. Can I just take a second to say that that is an amazing name for a union? Isn't it amazing? I myself noted that. <laughs> I'm just expecting them wearing, what's that thing called? Chainmail? You know, and like having a tattoo on their head. But like if they're going to wear chainmail, if they're labour chainmail, it's made out of like railway slats and just being like, yes, we are knights and we are chivalrous, but also we are labourers. We use our tools to protect ourselves. And like and all different types, like if you were a carpenter, your one would be made out of wood. If you're, you could have all variations. If you're a cooper, you're just walking around inside a giant barrel. <laughs> Anywho. So, yeah, it is. It's a very cool name. And they promoted the social and cultural uplift of the working man and demanded an eight-hour day. This is how she became involved in the labour movement. She decided to take an active part in the efforts of the working people to better the working conditions under which they worked and lived, so she became a member of the Knights of Labour. 
did she have any difficulty joining them as a woman? She was one of the first women. They weren't concerned as much with gender. Their fight was a, a class fight. And I think because of the time, again, kind of similarly to now, because of what happened with the fire and stuff, kind of all shields were down in terms of, you know, different things. But it was more about banding together for the sake of the, the working man. So, yeah, she didn't have that much of a, an issue. But she began traveling around the country to different towns and cities, working with different groups that were planning on striking or unionizing. And she did this for many years. She first displayed her powerful public speaking and organizing abilities in Pittsburgh during the Great Railroad Strike of 1877. She took part in and led hundreds of strikes, including those that led to the Haymarket Riot in Chicago in 1886, which was just a, not just, but it was a big riot and a strike. It's actually astonishing how many protests and strikes she was involved in and if I was to list them here I'll probably turn this off because we would be here all day first of all and it would be like uh, Milwaukee 1895 uh, you know Pennsylvania 1882 she literally went everywhere when she was asked where did she live where was her home she said anywhere there was a fight so at the beginning she was kind of doing this she hadn't become known as Mother Jones yet. She was just very much a part of the committees and just going all around America helping people that needed help in unionizing and organizing strikes. So in June 1897, after Mary addressed the Railway Union Convention, she began to be referred to as Mother by the men of the union and the name stuck. And she also really leaned into this character. But by 1897, she would have been 60 and like had gray hair. She wore all shawls. And it's funny that she became, not funny, haha, but just funny that she became known as mother when, you know, her life as a mother was tragically kind of taken away from her. Well, that's what I was just thinking is it's kind of lovely in a way that although she lost her own children, she found an entire brethren of you know, hundreds, if not thousands of children that she could lend her his support to. It's, I wouldn't go funny. I, I, I'm going kind of poetic. Yeah, it is. It's sweet. And it's, yeah, it is poetic. And it's nice, you know. At this particular convention, 9,000 member mine workers called a nationwide strike of soft coal miners and tens of thousands of miners laid down their tools. And she was there kind of leading them and everything and it was massive event and act and this would have been talked about a lot so the name mother kind of spread sometime after that the united mine workers launched a strike for a living wage in the coal fields and she was a part of this union but to her it was more than about union contract for her to help with these things she really believed that the ordinary miners should direct their economic destiny and that the public should own the coal and natural resources, not corporations. And she believed in organizing at the community level to demonstrate workers' capacity for managing their destiny. She believed that the so-called unskilled worker, immigrants and African-Americans should be the base of the new movement. 
she put women and children at the center of struggles in the coal fields and she was very much in support of like a family-based union and movement because these people were working in the mines for like 14 hour days which is crazy when you're like giving out here about your nine and a half hour day like I, I can't imagine like Jesus you'd be so miserable having to work 14 hours a day let alone in a coal mine and how dangerous it is and stuff and she believed that this was obviously affecting the family a lot as well because it just would affect the home life of course yeah <laughs> if you're working that much under those conditions and i imagine that that illness would have been illness and injury would have been quite prevalent as well so yeah it, if it's not impacting on your family life you probably didn't have much of a family life <laughs> exactly so she has a biography that she wrote and in it she talks about some of her experiences going to these different protests and strikes and stuff first of all at the beginning when she's talking about some of the protests she talks about how the corporations that ran the mines or the railroad company or whatever it was would often hire thugs or like gangsters or criminals to join the strike to pose as a worker and then cause trouble and like burn things and wreck property or uh, attack the police and then blame the strikers and the unionizers and the protesters. I wonder where we've seen that recently. <laughs> Isn't it so crazy, the parallels, like reading about it? It's actually, if anybody does want to check this out, the first 35 pages of her biography are free on Google Books. And the second chapter, it talks about the tactics that the police were use, using to like keep the protests down and squash the rights of the people. And it was crazy reading it. It was like, because then you look at The Guardian or whatever, and it's like, oh my God, the same thing is happening right now in 2020. It's shocking, the parallels. Another thing that I noticed in her autobiography is she went to all these different towns and they really took her in as this mother you know she could stay in their house she would be friendly with the men and the women and also when she got there like people would want to assassinate her people wanted her to go away people didn't want her in their town like especially the business people the governors the police the marshal guards at some point and in her autobiography she talks about mobilizing the women as well as the men so she would make they're called mop and broom brigades she'd organize for the women to go with mops and brooms and be like the front line of defense for people coming to either fight with the miners or the strikers or disband them or whatever so the first line of defense would be women with mops and brooms and would be throwing water at the people or their horses and hitting them and hitting their horses and things like that and because they still hit women, but they weren't so going to do it so steadily first. She kind of mobilized them into armies when she got to places, which was quite interesting. And in the book, she talks about getting the prettiest woman in the town to be the leader because, you know, they're more likely to listen to her and not hit her or something. It's crazy, <laughs> but it's really interesting. I just love this repurposing of women as like and domestic servitude that it's like yeah okay that servitude element but instead of serving the patriarchy and the class wars and all that kind of stuff you're serving 
in battle almost yeah for sure she was a poetic lady (laughs) she was get your weapons gals we're going fighting you might have your guns we have our mops just imagine them just throwing bales of water like brooms fire she also had loads of catchphrases not catchphrases like slogans that she said but one very popular one was she would say pray for the dead and fight like hell for the living which again is pretty relevant right now you know Another time she was introduced as a humanitarian and she said, I'm not a humanitarian, I'm a hellraiser. And she was quite like anarchist. Yeah, it was cool. But it wasn't just the miners and, you know, older workers that she fought for. She was very concerned about child workers. And slavery had been abolished in 1865, technically, but we all know the the real story there. But child slavery was still very much very popular, you know, amongst people, which, again, unfortunately, still is the case in some countries today. But she was very concerned about this and she went undercover as a mill worker and she saw firsthand that six year olds would work dangerous looms from 5.30 a.m. until 7 p.m. Oh, wow. Obviously, like the longer you work, the more likely you were to, to get injured as you got tired. And she said some with missing thumbs and others with mangled hands. And I think like it's horrific to think about, but in terms of like workers and their lives and stuff, they'd get injured in work and then they'd just be fired and then they might never be able to work anywhere again. And then they'd probably starve, you know, like there wasn't systems in place compensation anything like that it was a value for life was very low and you know this is something that really disturbed her as it should so one of her big strikes that she's very famous for is in philadelphia she organized a silk strike where 100,000 workers including 16,000 children left their jobs demanding that their work week be cut from 60 to 55 hours that's not a big demand (laughs) you know if you think about it it's crazy a six-year-old working 60 hours or 55 hours or any hours but to attract attention to the cause of getting rid of child labor in 1903 she led a march of 100 children from the textile mills of philadelphia to new york city to show the new york millionaires our grievances She led the children all the way to President Theodore Roosevelt's Long Island home. And then every day she and a few dozen children, boys and girls, some 12 and 14 years old, some of them crippled by the machinery of the textile mills, walked to a new town. And at night they staged rallies with music, skits and speeches drawing thousands of citizens. So she used kind of theatrical tactics to show people what was going on and kind of use it as a political tool which is interesting i was just thinking she's like the political pipe piper yeah i know <laughs> also i'm like jesus these poor children you know they're working dawn to dusk and they have to walk from philadelphia to new york but it is all in the name of a good cause but these kind of things that she did these theatrical elements and all that like a lot of the time they made front page news which got people's attention and which was what she was about, was causing a stir for political change. 
1912, she returned to West Virginia and there was a big violent strike there that lasted a year. And here she was actually arrested and convicted of conspiracy to commit murder. So a martial law had been declared and revoked twice, which again is very topical. And she was accused of conspiring to commit murder, among other charges. She refused to recognize the legitimacy of her court-martial, and she was arrested on the 13th of February 1913 and brought before a military court. Was she accused of attempted murder of a person, or was it the attempted murder of the economy? Well, she was... I'm just going to pass right on over that. I'm not even going to stop. <laughs> um, both, Maria. Both. She was actually known as at the time as the most dangerous woman in America in the papers and stuff because she was such a threat to the economy and particularly the people benefiting the most from the economy hated her. People did try and kill her a lot and people did try and bring these things you know these crimes against her they were trying to get anything they could you know compiled to try and get her locked up and this did work for a time because she got a 20-year jail sentence I think the conspiracy to murder was against uh, a politician a local politician about the the strike that was going on but she just spent 85 days under house arrest she didn't actually get the 20 years only because the public appeals on her behalf convinced the governor to shorten her sentence and they also said that she just had to leave there and I think never come back basically it was the, the gist of it so afterwards she returned to Colorado and made a national crusade out of the tragic events of the Ludlow massacre which was another massacre to do with striking and anti-strikers fighting over the Colorado Coldfield war Basically, there's riots and death ensued. And because of this, she lobbied President Woodrow Wilson. So she actually went up against a lot of politicians, but she often lost the fight because they weren't too interested in class equality. Gasp. So she participated in several industrial strikes on the East Coast between 1915 and 1919 and continued to organize miners well into her 90s. So that's kind of the extent of her protests and her striking and everything. You know, she did it for a very long time. She also was very committed, obviously, to unionism, but she wanted unionism that bridged racial and ethnic divisions. So she condemned white supremacists in the union movement and she argued, for instance, that the black miners of West Virginia were the best trade unionists. And in the Southwest, she argued Mexicans and Italians should be the base for the movement. And when an African-American woman impressed with Mother Jones' commitment to their cause suggested she would kiss Jones's skirt hem in gratitude, Jones replied, not in the dust, sister, to me, but here on my breast, heart to heart. You know, it's really cool that she was progressive in terms of race and ethnicity and her war was the class war. But funnily enough, she was against women's suffrage. Interesting. It is quite interesting. 
her struggle was completely with class struggle. She practically wore blinders on terms of that. And you can see why that happened from her life growing up in Cork and seeing the class divide here and just throughout her life from all of her family dying. You know, you can get why she did that. She said the reason that she didn't support women's suffrage is that you don't need a vote to raise hell. I guess, though, if you look at as well the, the people who she would have been supporting at the time, like a lot of those people wouldn't have had votes either necessarily. You know, a very small percentage of people would have had the vote in Ireland in the mid 19th century. And it's also, you know, the way we were talking a couple of episodes ago about how it's kind of irritating when it comes to women that they can't be flawed and they have to be this beacon and everything like that. I think that. Yes, it's interesting that she wasn't supporting suffrage, but also, is it relevant with everything else that she did? Yeah, I agree. And she was kind of like anarchist to an extent anyway. Like, I don't think she had much care for the law because of what it imposed on the lower classes. So to her, voting didn't mean much. She pointed out that the women of Colorado had the vote and failed to use it to prevent the appalling conditions that led to labour violence. I don't think she had much regard for a vote in the first place. She considered suffragettes unwitting dupes of class warfare. And she said they were naive women who unwittingly acted as deceitful agents of class warfare. She kind of saw voting as a bourgeois thing she had bigger fish to fry in her own mind but she was a feminist in terms of her actions you know she saw men and women as equal she you know you can tell by her language but she did think that working class woman's time is best spent in the home as a family maker but she meant that in kind of that so they're not in a silk factory or they're not in a wherever women could work you know for 14 hours a day and her children being there as well. I think she was more, that was her point of view with that, is that like a woman should be at home minding her children rather than working 14 hours a day and getting her arms chopped off. One of the things that I find very interesting when I read kind of feminist history in particular, but history in general, but particularly feminist history, is like the cyclical nature of particular issues so that nowadays absolutely women should be free to work if they want to work stay at home if they want to stay at home similarly men should be free to work if if they want to work stay at home if they want to stay at home provided obviously that somebody is paying the bills somewhere along the way but that's now and these are the issues that we're facing now and I can see how it would be completely different back then exactly like that when it's kind of there's a very big difference between working in an office and and not saying that everybody nowadays works in an office but by and large it's much safer to be a worker in this age than it would have been a hundred years ago so yeah if if I was told a hundred years ago your choices are between staying at home or going out and and like putting your your life and your limbs at risk for 55 hours a week also mind you yeah like I, I think I'd be on board with the yeah do you know what I am a woman my place is at home <laughs> uh, it's like have you seen Ali Wong's 
comedy special? Uh, I've seen one of them. I haven't seen the other one. The first one's really funny when she's talking about feminism and she has this joke about how we've done it wrong because now the women have to go out and work, whereas we should get to relax at home. It's funny and tongue-in-cheek, not serious. Obviously, we should rule the world. Who deserves to rule the world should rule the world. And uh, we all know that's me. (laughs) Marianne, the CDC. So she died in 1930, six months after celebrating her 100th birthday. But funnily enough, it wasn't her 100th birthday. She was only 93. She added years onto her. I don't know, was it to lean into this kind of mother, grandmother type figure? She said she was seven years older than she was. Over 40,000 people attended her funeral in Chicago. And the priest said that strong men wept when they heard of her death. And that in mahogany furnished offices in distant capitals, wealthy mine owners are breathing a sigh of relief. That is the kind of eulogy that I would appreciate on my demise. Most people are sad, but some people, you know, they're glad to see the back of you. And I'll just be like lying in my grave being like, yes, through the roof of my coffin. Well, yes, maybe she did that. After her death, in 1932, about 15,000 Illinois mine workers gathered in Mount Olive, Olivet, that's where she's buried, to protest against the United Mine Workers, which soon became the Progressive Mine Workers of America. Convinced that they had acted in the spirit of Mother Jones, the miners decided to place a proper headstone to her grave. So they actually saved up 16,000 and were able to purchase 80 tons of Minnesota pink granite with bronze statues of two miners flanking a 20-foot shaft featuring Mother Jones at its centre. So yeah, like her legacy lives on. There's Mother Jones Day in Chicago and Illinois celebrated. Here in Ireland recently in Cork, there's been the Spirit of Mother Jones Festival that's been set up. Um, which is around she said that her birthday was the first of may which is labor day but that isn't true (laughs) you know she kind of uh, garnished some of the facts herself i think the spirit of mother jones festival is around august or something there is a plaque of her which i walk past nearly every day which i didn't realize that's towards the north cathedral in cork and there is a left-wing newspaper called mother jones in america which is is quite cool, actually, but it's named after her. And I was checking that out this week, and it's kind of interesting. But they say in their bio, she offers a vivid reminder of what remains among the most under-acknowledged issue of our day, that America is a class-driven society where the wealthy have grown obscenely rich as working people have fallen further behind. And that is as obvious as ever right now, tied in with, obviously, the massive racial struggle in America. So, yeah, that's that's Mother Jones for you. She is, I think, possibly my favourite person that you've done so far. Thank you for sharing that story with us. Yeah, she's pretty cool. There is a lot about her online. She's probably the most accessible person that I've uh, researched. But it's funny that she seems to be very famous in Illinois. But I 
only heard about her here the last couple of years, there's a flea market in Cork. And that's the first time I had heard about her like three or four years ago because of that. I did know she was, now I was using a bit of creative license at the beginning. Like I knew she was a socialist and a trade unionist. I never heard of her before I moved to Cork for sure. And seeing as how you know how obsessed I was with James Connolly growing up, you'd think that I would have stumbled across her somewhere along the way. But yeah, she's just really, really interesting, interesting story. And I am so impressed by how she managed to just rise from the ashes time and time again. I would love to think that I had that level of mental fortitude, but... Oh, I don't even want to think about it. <laughs> I hope, you know, Jesus, like it, like the magnitude of what she went through is crazy. She is, she's a true fighter. So on that note, we are going to wrap up for the week because we have gone slightly over the normal. So just to once again say that our thoughts, support and non-denominational, multi-denominational prayers and wishes are with everybody who is struggling and fighting for their own rights and channeling their inner Mother Jones at the moment and any help that we can give um, will be freely given and yeah thanks for listening and tune in again next week oh also social media like share all that kind of stuff phenomenal podcast on Facebook and Instagram and yeah thanks for listening Bye. Bye.